HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Leite Sue, host of Word of Mouth. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food here on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica Wides, your host. Before we begin the show, let me just remind you that Heritage Radio is member-supported, and this is the final week of our summer membership drive. And if you join before tomorrow, today or tomorrow, a secret anonymous donor will double your, actually match your pledge, match your pledge. So I think now's the time, people. Just saying, do it. Anyway, back to the show. There comes a time in the life of all New Yorkers. Well, maybe not all New Yorkers, just people who started out living in Manhattan in the late 80s, back when Manhattan was a place you'd actually want to live in because it wasn't quite yet the East Coast mall-filled suburb or Midwestern town you grew up in, which basically it's become now, but back then. But there was a time when you realized that, hey, hey, I could move across the river to Brooklyn and get a much better, bigger, and cheaper apartment in a somewhat sketchy but much cooler and more interesting neighborhood. Everybody has that moment in their life. And maybe a few of your friends had already moved there or already lived there, and you'd visit them on the weekends, and you'd sit out in their backyards or go to their local bars, and you'd think, yes, this is what I've been looking for. This is the missing piece of my life that I've been yearning for. And so you packed it all up, and you found a place for way less rent because that's what Brooklyn used to be. That's what its purpose was as the place that was cheaper than Manhattan, but not anymore. And you moved. And then after a few months or a few years, you looked around and you thought, OMG, I could actually have a car here. 
I could have a car and I could go to different places on the weekends or shop at Costco and park on the street fairly effortlessly. And maybe because you were saving so much money now on rent, you found yourself a teeny tiny little bungalow north of the city. And while you could easily take the train there, it eventually made sense to get a car. And so you did. And for a good few years, you parked on the street playing the alternate side parking game, which is what we do here in New York, because the city sends the street sweeper machines down the blocks weekly. It used to be twice weekly, but now our streets are dirtier, but there's more parking. And you'd have to move your car or get ticketed or towed. But you played the game for a while because that's what everybody else did. And you figured out how to time it and what spots were good. And then you noticed that there were garages all around your neighborhood where you could park for under $200 a month, which is insane compared to Manhattan where a monthly spot would cost you like 500 a month. So you bit the bullet and you rented a spot. And even though the spot was in a five-story elevated open-sided parking structure deck that also functioned as a de facto public urinal and was so overrun with trash and rats that one winter the rats built a nest of burger wrappers inside your engine block... It was better than driving up and down the streets twice a week looking for the elusive Thursday spot. And then, a few years later, the block that the parking deck was built on slowly started to change as the neighborhood changed and a few new businesses started to creep in. And even though it was still pretty slummy and down market, a Greyhound bus station opened, which was weird, and then a Popeye's chicken and then a 99-cent store and... Then in the largest retail space below the parking deck came the IHOP. The IHOP moved in right there on the corner of Bond and Livingston Street. And having no need or cause or reason to ever visit an IHOP, you grudgingly accepted its presence and used to laugh because the IHOP cooks would stand out back smoking cigarettes and other smokable things by the back entrance and secretly hoping that they didn't wash their hands when they returned to flipping their stacks of red velvet and jelly donut pancakes because if someone chose to eat at IHOP, then you kind of get what you deserve. Imho. Now, oddly, once the IHOP moved in, the rats moved out. Even New York City rats have better taste and judgment than to eat there. And then suddenly an IHOP also opened in the West Village. The West Village, once the land of writers and intellectuals and artists and bohemians and old brownstones, it opened right next door to the tiny Southeast Asian restaurant where you first did your big menu consulting job. And then an IHOP opened in the East Village, not two blocks from your first dumpy six-floor walk-up tenement apartment where the junkies would pass out behind the steps with syringes of blood stuck out of their necks and the homeless and the squatters rioted in the parks in the late 80s. Very edgy moves, IHOP. What a pioneering restaurant chain. So brave, so bold, so suburban. But back to Brooklyn and parking. So everything was fine for a bunch of years. Downtown Brooklyn was filled with parking lots and garages like mine. Big open spaced ones on the street and big stacked up deck ones because it's a big shopping area, but also because the Brooklyn courts, the city and st federal and state courts are there and Borough Hall is there and several colleges share the neighborhood and lots of people drive in to work there and park or they drive in from Long Island or Staten Island and they park there and they take the subway to Manhattan. So we were a big parking neighborhood, but... 
the monsters of high-rise development had other ideas. And back in April, we got a letter from our parking company informing us that our garage was closing. And we had to be out by the end of June. So I went around the neighborhood asking at all the other 24-hour parking lots and garages if they had spots. And they said, nope, all full up. And we're probably closing too. Basically, a wholesale sweep of the hood was happening. Every single parking lot, empty lot, and open bit of land has been bought up by developers in a mad rush to turn downtown Brooklyn into downtown Cincinnati or someplace like that. All glass and steel and chrome high-rises. The Brooklyn of Walt Whitman and Truman Capote and Jonathan Lethem now looking more like Wilshire Boulevard or Tampa. There are currently seven large high-rise construction projects happening within 10 square blocks of my apartment. So we're back to parking on the street because there are literally no monthly spots left in all of downtown Brooklyn. I know, I know. As they say, a first world problem. Boo-hoo, where will I park my car that I use to get to my second home? Wah, my life stinks. But you know what? It's really not that big a deal. And I'm saving hundreds of dollars a month now on parking, which I can now use to travel to places like Tampa or Cincinnati. So it's all cool. Now, I have ranted and raved my little salt and pepper colored hair head off about places like IHOP here on Let's Get Real on past episodes. And this isn't really a show about IHOP. I only mentioned IHOP and the long story about parking because I walked by our shuttered parking deck yesterday. And guess what? No mas IHOP. Gone. All the red vinyl booths and foamy, foamy? No, faux homey furnishings were ripped out and the wallboard was being knocked off the walls. And IHOP is gone. I guess they weren't included in the plan for the shiny new high rise building that is to rise from the ashes of the urine town rat motel and parking garage formerly occupied by my car. And the IHOP in the West Village? That's gone, too. Shuttered. Shut down. They had a 69-year lease. Guess it didn't really last. Which makes me extremely happy, even though it's bound to become a TD Bank branch or a CVS or an Olive Garden. Actually, no, not an Olive Garden, because Olive Garden is struggling big time. And they've been closing stores and desperately retooling and revamping their image because people don't want to eat their crappy food anymore and they can't figure out what to do. Ha ha! Sucks for you, Olive Garden. Now, there's no word yet on the East Village IHOP, although with the way that NYU has swallowed that neighborhood in its giant corporate maw, I'm not surprised that the IHOP is still open. Anyway, enough of the New York City real estate news. This isn't a show about that. This is not a real estate news show or a New York City show. It's a show about food and foodiness. And the true reason I'm dancing on IHOP's grave... The actual theme and idea behind this episode is berries. Yes, it's all about the berries. All the berries. Straw, raz, blue, mull, black. All the berries. The whole family of berries. Now, there was a family-owned pancake restaurant in my hometown of East Atauk at Long Island. And I think it was called the Family Pancake Cottage or something. No, it was the... Pancake Cottage Family Restaurant. That's what it was, actually. And very, very, very occasionally, my cheap-ass parents would spring for a breakfast out, which for my heroin addiction level childhood sugar jonesing 
mint chocolate chip pancakes doused in pancake syrup. Not our usual homemade buckwheat pancakes from scratch with yogurt added surreptitiously, even though I could taste it, into the batter to try to sneak it in with real maple syrup brought down from Vermont by the cool hippie aunt and uncle. No, all of which I ate but secretly dreamed of fluffy white flour and caramel-colored corn syrup at a place like the Pancake Cottage. It was like sugar mecca to me. And at the Pancake Cottage, they had the the multiple syrup jugs on the table with the multiple flavored syrups, the different berry-flavored syrups and berry-colored syrups, the blue syrup and the pink syrup and the red syrup. It was an eight-year-old sugar junkie's syrup wet dream. And I doused my pancakes in that shit and then immediately regret it because even then, that was too much for even me. But I had to eat it because I did it and I had to save face, albeit a little fat face, which I did. IHOP had flavored syrups too. All the berries, of course. The blue and the raz and the straw, plus their famous fruity toppings for their cakes, not just the red velvet and the fakey pumpkin cakes and all the other cake-flavored cakes, but their strawberry gooptastic and their blueberry snot bomb toppings. And I mention all of this because it's berry season. And what do I do every berry season? Come on. You've known me for a long, long time now. This is episode 102, for Christ's sakes. In berry season, I pick. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, let's talk about berries. Hi, I'm Grace Bonney, host of After the Jump. This summer, Heritage Radio Network is turning five. Since our launch in 2009, we've continued to bring you food and culture content like nobody else, and we need your help. HeritageRadioNetwork.org is a passionate, grassroots, action-oriented, nonprofit organization. That means we depend on the support from listeners like you to keep us alive. If you love what you hear on Heritage Radio Network, visit our website and become a member today. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Hi, I'm Reggie Watts, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Welcome back to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on HeritageRadioNetwork.org with me, EricaWides.com. Remember, if you like this show, of course you do, why wouldn't you? You can always listen to all of Let's Get Real's shows ever on HeritageRadioNetwork.org or all of our shows ever on iTunes. And also check out Let'sGetRealShow.com. You can read my vlog. You can look at some videos. You can read articles I've written in multiple media outlets around the globe. You can have yourself a good old time there. But then come back to HeritageRadioNetwork.org, point your browser there, click on Join and join us. Become one of us. We need you. Remember, we have a matching grant in place until tomorrow. So back to berries. So I pick berries. 
in the summer. I hike up all the small mountains in the lower Hudson Valley. I know them all. Taurus, Beacon, Storm King, Popalopin, Breakneck. If you're from around here, you know them. And in the process of hiking up all those little mountains, I stuff my face with wild blueberries when they're in season, which is exactly what I did last weekend, which I stretched out to be a four-day weekend due to my recent slowdown in consulting work for the summer. So I hiked and picked and hiked and picked, and I ate so many blueberries that I'm pretty sure I, you know, pooped blue. And I do this every year because I'm like a deer or a bear, you know, where there's wild food around, I'll gorge on it until it's gone, and then I wait until next year. It's like asparagus. I eat asparagus in April and May when it's in season, and then that's pretty much it for asparagus. doesn't make sense to eat asparagus in November, let's say. Now, this year, the blueberries are abundant. It is quite a year for wild blueberries. Now, maybe it was all the snow or the late spring or climate change or nuclear waste because we're near the Indian Point nuclear plant. I don't know, but we're getting a really big wild crop, and they're right there for free on the trail, free for the picking right there. You don't even really have to reach. You just stick your hand out grab blueberries. And the weird thing is, while I see lots of other people hiking these trails, I don't see anyone else ever picking these berries. Adam and I are the only ones who do it. And I mean, that's fine by me because, you know, more for us, right? But I think people are afraid. I've mentioned this before on the show, how we've come to be distrustful of the wild and we only trust the cultivated. We fear the wild food as if the cultivated were safer, Uh, Do you know how many chemicals are sprayed on your food? Uh, Have you thought about that? Because when we're hiking, Adam's like, "Uh uh-oh, what if they sprayed the mountain for West Nile virus? I'm like, first of all, they don't spray mountains. Second of all, the shit they spray on cultivated food is a lot worse than anything we're going to get picking a wild blueberry up here. So just relax. That's what I say. So I basically picked my butt off in blueberries, and I plan to do it again this weekend if there's still some up there. Maybe everyone else has gotten to them. I don't know. But now along with the blueberries, we also have a mulberry tree in the front yard of the bungalow. And sometimes I gather and eat those too. Although, you know, I don't love them. They're kind of bland. And I actually learned last week from listening to Dave Arnold of, what's his show called? Food Issues? Food Matters? What is it, Jack? I should know by now. Oh, sorry. Cooking (laughs) Issues. Cooking Issues, of course. That's it. Because he goes on right before me, and he often goes right up until the very last minute. And he was talking about mulberries, and he said something about how there's white mulberries and there's black mulberries, but sometimes they hybridize, and then you get bland mulberries. And I think that's what we have. Because our mulberries are, they're kind of bland. They're sweet, but there's no acidity, so it's not that enjoyable. But I pick them anyway sometimes. I gather them up, and I'll eat those, you know, because they're free, and they're wild, and those are my two favorite things. Although... I have to fight the deer and the birds and the raccoons and the squirrels because they all love them too. And they swarm all over our tree day and night. Sometimes at night you can hear the raccoons fighting on the roof over the mulberries. And it's actually really scary. They scream at each other and they fight over the berries. It's kind of freaky. And then in the morning there's always deer poop all over the lawn. But it's okay. They're animals. They were here before us, right? It's their right to eat the berries too, not just me. And then right along this time of year, we also get the wine berries. Now, wine berries are like a wild raspberry, and they're an invasive weed, and they grow like crazy, and people hate them because they have these prickly bushes, and they're everywhere. 
But you know what? They're covered in free wild food, people. So why are you fighting so hard? Just pick them. And wine berries are really delicious, too. They're kind of like a juicier, more delicate raspberry with, I think, a better taste. So we're always out there picking those, two. And after we blueberried ourselves out on the mountains this weekend, we took a walk down the road and we binged on wine berries, too. Now, I think I mentioned once that a neighbor of mine up there in tiny bungalow land was just horrified, simply horrified, that we'd eat them right off the vine like that. Well, you know what? I'd rather eat those car exhaust covered street berries than some industrially grown sprayed and picked by underpaid abused labor pint of Driscoll's from the A&P. That's for sure. Now, I did buy some blueberries at the supermarket this year from Hammondtown, New Jersey, blueberry capital of the world, because, you know, they're local and I wanted to support them. They had so little flavor that you couldn't even really tell what it was that you had placed in your mouth. In fact, they had anti-flavor. Those blueberries made me wonder if I would ever actually be able to taste anything again. They sucked all the flavor right out of my being. So then as we walked home from the wineberry orgy, I spotted a black raspberry bush. Yes, black raspberries. Now, this was very exciting because I've never seen those around. I saw a few up on the mountain. I thought it was a fluke. Then I saw them right on my street. Maybe climate change has brought black raspberries to zone seven or zone six or whatever we are up there. So we picked and ate a few handfuls of those too. Now, this was all really, really exciting. But for me, the holy grail is the blackberry, the perfect blackberry. I mean, I love eating me some wild blueberries and wineberries and black raspberries. But the blackberry to me is the ultimate berry reward. Now, in two weeks, I'm going out to Portland, Oregon to visit my BFF, Lisa. And Oregon is covered, completely covered in blackberry vines. And they consider them a scourge and a weed, and they're always fighting them back. And they have goats, of course, because it's Portland, to clear the blackberry vines off of the highway medians. But there's shitloads of blackberries out there. And every time I'm with Lisa out there in the summer, I make her pull the car over when I spot a loaded bush so I can get out and pick to my heart's content. Although they call them Marion berries in Oregon. I don't know who Marion was, but they're blackberries. And when you say Marion berries, all I can think of is Marion Berry. Remember him? The former, you know, crack pipe smoking, whore patronizing mayor of Washington, D.C. from the early 90s. Anybody remember Marion Berry? Anyway, where does foodiness come into all of this berry rhapsodizing? <clears throat> Did you think I would do an entire episode and not mention foodiness? It is what Let's Get Real is all about, after all. Did you think I had suddenly forgotten about foodiness? No, because the IHOP berry slop, which I think kind of sounds like a dance that you would have done back in the 50s, the IHOP berry slop, the IHOP berry slop that gets dumped over their cake-flavored cakes, is that foodiness? Are they really trying to convince anyone that eating that pile of crap will provide you with the vitamins and enzymes and pigments and nutrients of fresh berries or of any other fruit or actual food? I don't know. Probably. I'm sure plenty of people eat that shit and then think, well, okay then. I just got my RDA of fruit for the day. Let's hit the drive through I hope not. Now, I'm sure IHOP has government endorsed and approved and provided nutrition info tailored just to make their fruity-tastic toppings seem 
like actual food. And if you choose to eat that shit, well, you know, good luck with life and all of that because we all make our choices. So is it foodiness? I guess so. I mean, really, the definition for me of foodiness is when a company is trying to convince you that a food is something that it's not. So if a pile of gloop-tastic berry slop on your red velvet pancakes is trying to be sold to you as something nutritious, then it's foodiness. If they're just saying this is a pile of slop-tastic blueberry gloop, then that's what it is. So is it foodiness? I don't know. I guess so. But... You know what's more insidiously foodiness-esque is the burying of the frozen food aisle. No, not burying as what, you know, as in what will happen to your bloated diabetic corpse after a few too many IHOP brunches. No, not burying. Burying. Burying of foods. Because by now... We all know how berries are so good for us. Berries are superfoods. They're antioxidants. Dr. Oz loves berries. Everybody should eat more berries. Berries, berries, berries. Blueberries are just going crazy. There's berries in everything. Everybody eat more berries. Yes, and they are really good for you. It's true. In their kind of plain, fresh, natural form, of course. And that's the message we've been hearing. And even McDonald's has gotten into the berry picture because now McDonald's has fruit smoothies and one of them is raspberry. And did you know that McDonald's now buys up one third of the entire raspberry harvest in the U.S.? One third of the entire harvest to make their McDonald's berry smoothies. Now, is a McDonald's berry smoothie foodiness? Uh, may we? Because along with all those berries, you get a huge dose of sugar and a whole lot of marketing BS about health and nutrition and superfoods. Where, whereas I'm not sure that any IHOP eater really thinks they're actually doing themselves any sort of nutritional favor. Now, after all of the hot sun of the hiking and berry collecting, we needed to go to the store to buy some beer. Because beer follows berries. You know, like form follows function, beer follows berries and hiking. Beer really follows hiking. And luckily, our local supermarket actually has a whole special local beer section there now because there are several local breweries breweries in the lower Hudson Valley these days. You know, and the supermarkets are trying to get in on the local thing. So that's great. So we went to buy our Captain Lawrence IPA. Huh, little plug there for you, Captain Lawrence IPA. Perhaps you'd like to sponsor the show. We'll talk. And while I was there, I said to Adam, I think we need a frozen frosty dessert treat. Don't you? We were out hiking. It was hot. A frozen frosty dessert treat might be in order. Because while we were out hiking and we found the one black raspberry bush, I mentioned to him that I had once been to Cincinnati, you know, the city that I insulted earlier in the show. And Cincinnati has a famous ice cream company called Graters. Graters is known for their black raspberry chip ice cream. And that I had had it once and it was really delicious, even though I don't really like bits of stuff in my ice cream. And actually, I don't even really like ice cream that much anymore. But the black raspberry chip really was quite tasty. Sorry, Cincinnati. You're not all high rises and glass and cars. You have good ice cream. Now, black raspberry isn't a flavor that we East Coasters ever really knew of in previous decades. Not that I can remember. I mean, I grew up here and I had never really seen it black raspberry until I'd eaten graters. Blue raspberry, you know, in the snow cone and slushy world, there's blue raspberry, but those are not grown on this planet. We grow those on a special planet in foodiness outer space. Black raspberry? Mm, never seen them. Blackberries, yes. 
And so I'd never really seen it until I ate graders. But suddenly, there in the ice cream and frozen desserts aisle of my local supermarket were many, many black raspberry flavored items. Like it's suddenly become something. Have I just not been frozen dessert shopping for many years? I don't often go down that aisle. But is this a thing now? Were black raspberries always a thing? How did I miss that? I ate plenty of ice cream growing up. Black raspberries are wild. I have never, ever seen them for sale in a market, cultivated or otherwise, not even at like a farmer's market. So how is this happening? Where are they coming from? I thought this was like a small niche, like local to the Midwest thing. Like they would send all the kids out to pick the black raspberries and make that ice cream in that one place. So how is it that ice cream and frozen treats sold nationally can all suddenly find enough black raspberries to naturally flavor and color their products. Where are all these black raspberries being grown? I'm very confused about this. So all we wanted, all I wanted, because it was really my choice, were frozen Greek yogurt pops. That's what I wanted, frozen Greek yogurt pops, because I don't really like or eat much ice cream, as I said. Now, I used to, back in my pancake cottage, chocolate chip pancakes, sugar jonesing, junky days, I couldn't get enough ice cream, but now it's actually too rich and too sweet for me. I like a good frozen yogurt pop, Greek yogurt pop, but it has to be a good one. It has to be real. It has to be made with real ingredients, not some crappy fake frozen yogurt pop. So I went down the aisle and I found some. They were chocolate. I read the label. It was pretty clean. No corn syrup, no dyes, no gums, basically just, you know, milk, culture, sugar, chocolate, etc. I'm okay with sugar as long as there's no other crap in there. So I grabbed a box of them, and then I saw that they were two boxes for like $5.99, which is a good price. And you know I love a bargain, so I grabbed another box. These were blueberry pomegranate flavor, and I thought, great, they must be all natural. Everything's fine. We got to get home fast before they melt, so let's go, because it was like 90 degrees out. So I threw them in the bag, jumped in the car, drove home, because I figured if the same brand's chocolate Greek yogurt frozen pop was clean labeled, wouldn't their berry-flavored Greek yogurt frozen pop be clean-labeled too, right? Uh, no. After I got home, I read the box. What was in it? Corn syrup, red dye, artificial berry flavor. What the fuck? The old bait-and-switch, huh? Now, just more foodiness creeping up to get me in a moment of weak heat stroke. Greek yogurt, berries, health halo, greenwashing, meat, the same old shit. I got conned by foodiness. Even I fell for it. And I'm supposed to be out there on the front lines protecting all of you from it. But you know what? I was hot and I was tired from all the hiking and the burying. And I just wanted my IPA and my yogurt pops. And I just wanted to get home before they all melted. And so we did it. And you know what else? I ate them. I ate the foodiness. Yeah, I did. Because I'm human too. We're all fallible. It's okay. You can't only eat the buckwheat pancakes and forage for berries and eat wild dandelions off of your front yard. Sometimes you have to eat the Greek yogurt frozen pop with a little corn syrup in it too. But then you get right back out there and you fight those raccoons for the last few mulberries on your front lawn. So remember, this summer, if you see a wild berry bush anywhere, Marion Berry, schnozberry, wineberry, you get out there and you pick. Watch out for thorns. Be careful. But you pick those berries and you eat them and you keep fighting the foodiness. And remember, if you don't want to eat berries 
that are made from shit and you don't want to eat the fake stuff, keep listening to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica White. Thanks to Jack Ginsley in the booth today, Ben Kaplan for writing our theme music, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.